our passage of scripture this morning is the beginning of the book of Philippians. We're going to be starting a series and going through Philippians this summer, and we've broken it down into various mini-series that we're going to talk about as we go. But first, let me read the first 11 verses of Philippians 1. They're printed in your bulletin. If you don't have your Bible with you, I think they're also going to be up here on, on the screen. So give ear now. This is God's Word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. We're starting this series on when will I be happy? When will I be happy? That's the question that we're going to try to answer this summer. Uh, and it's a tough question. You know, I want you to think for a second. How many of you feel like you're happy? It's good. Um, I think everybody wants to be happy. You know, happiness or, or the, the, the quest for happiness, it's, it's woven into the fabric of our, of our society, right? From the Declaration of Independence when our country started, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. From the time our country was founded up to the movie that just came out, Up. This movie, Up. Life is all about, for so many people, pursuing happiness, Life is about when will I be happy? How can I be happy? What do I need to do to be happy? When will I be happy? And so we're going to look at this question throughout this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And the goal of this series, okay, the goal of this summer is that each of you would be consistently, powerfully, and unshakably happy. Okay, that's, that's my goal. That's what I want to see come out of this, that you would be consistently, powerfully, and unshakably happy with your life, with other people, with God, and with yourselves. That's what we're aiming for. I want you to be filled with with happiness to the point that it spills out, out of your life into the lives of of other people around you. Um, And this first chapter of Philippians the first three sermons, we're breaking this into a little mini-series. Chapter 1 of Philippians is really about when will I be happy with my life? Okay, when will I be happy with my life? And I think happiness may be one of those things that's easier to recognize than it is to define. You know, happiness is related to joy, and the two go hand in hand. But I think sometimes the more you focus on trying to be happy or trying to be joy-filled, the more it escapes you. It's ironic because 
it seems like it's the pursuit of happiness that's our biggest hindrance to becoming happy. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, it seems that we're constantly trying to complete the sentence, I'll be happy when, fill in the blank, right? And it's our efforts to keep putting new things at the end of that sentence. I'll be happy when this happens. I'll be happy when that happens. That's actually the cause of frustration in our lives. And so to gain the impact of even our passage, but the letter as a whole, before we get into the points, I want to do a little bit of background. I want to give you some details on where Paul was so that you can understand and be impacted more profoundly by what he writes. Okay, Paul was in prison. Okay, he wrote these words in prison. He was in Rome. He was in prison and he was put there by a combination of both the religious and the secular government. Okay, the Jewish authorities imprisoned him or, or arrested him. The Roman authorities have him in their, in their prisons. And so the religious authorities wanted him dead. Okay, that's why they had him arrested. They wanted him killed. And the secular authorities just didn't treat people very well in prison. Okay, and so Paul was in prison and he was chained to a Roman guard. Okay, and back then, the practice was that if you were in prison, you weren't fed by your captors. Okay? You weren't fed. You were completely dependent for your sustenance on the gifts that were brought to you by other people. So people would have to come to you and to give you, uh, you know, give you food, bring you money so that you could buy food in order for you to be able to eat. And so you were dependent completely on the help of other people. Now, Paul was also facing a trial before Caesar. Okay, that's why he was in prison. He was waiting trial. He was going to face Caesar, and he'd been accused of claiming that there was another king, Jesus. How do you think Caesar felt about that? Paul was saying that there was another Lord, that Jesus was Lord, which would mean that Caesar's not Lord. Caesar was going to have to bow down to the king that, to the king that Paul was proclaiming. And so that was what was awaiting Paul. That's what he was waiting for. He was facing that upcoming trial. And then Paul was called by God to preach the good news of Jesus' resurrection to all the nations, right? It was Paul's mission in life. His calling was to spread the gospel as far as he possibly could. And yet here he is in chains. He's bound in chains, in prison, unable to deliver the message to anyone. And so into this situation, Paul receives a gift from this church in Philippi. Okay? They sent him food. They sent him money. We don't really know exactly what it was. Paul makes reference to the gift that the Philippian church gave to him. And so it's this gift that he receives that was the reason why he then wrote back to them. Okay, And so I want you to think for a second, if you are in the middle of the worst, if the government, I mean, think this is basically from Paul's perspective, the government is persecuting him, right? The religious government, the secular government, they have imprisoned him unfairly. They have, they have put him in a situation that is awful, not only in terms of his own living situation, but in terms of his calling. He can't fulfill his calling. And there he is stuck, and finally he gets some communication from some supporters. How do you think he's going to respond? I mean, I can imagine Paul 
saying, oh my goodness, finally, someone who, will, who can listen to me, right? Somebody who I can dump on. You know, I could imagine Paul writing a letter where he just gave a litany of complaints. Like, oh my goodness, the government is so evil. This isn't fair. I'm stuck here. I have a call from God, and yet here I am, stuck so I can't do it. I'll be happy when I'm free. I'll be happy when the government gets struck down by God. I'll be happy when the government gets such a swell of protests that they change and let me go. I mean, I could imagine. How how would you respond in that situation? How do you respond to the government? Does the government steal your happiness? Do you allow the government to have control over your disposition in life? I mean, for some, it's just, it's natural. It's almost like some of us have worked this out pretty complicatedly um, that there's sort of this untapped pool of frustration with the government, be it local, be it national, whatever it is. There's this kind of pool that we keep in the back of our lives. And whenever we get frustrated and we can't really lash out or do anything about whatever it is that's really frustrating us, we go, oh, yeah, it's the government's fault, right? You know people like that? Um, maybe you're like that. Maybe you feel like there are times where you just kind of think, well, gosh, you know, I'll be happy when the government finally fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. I mean, I talk about the government because it's, it's clearly part of Paul's situation. But I think, too, we can generalize this. It's not just the government. It's really, think about the powers that be in your life. There are a lot of things that act upon you, aren't there? I mean, it's not just the government and the policies that come from the government. But think about, I mean, at work, you know, there, there are envir- there's an environment at work. There are powers that be at work that cause amazing frustration for you, right? Maybe, so maybe it's your employer. Maybe it's a relationship that's making your life miserable. You know, maybe you would say, I'll be happy when my employer fill in the blank. I'll be happy when this relationship fill in the blank. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was talking with a really good friend of mine who played 14 years um, of minor league baseball. Okay, and he was telling me, I was asking him about happiness. We were talking about this um, this week, and he was telling me a story of a guy named Mitch Webster. Okay, many of you might, might know him. He's, he played professional baseball for, for quite a while. Um, he spent seven and a half years in the minor leagues striving to make it to the bigs. Right? I mean, that's, that's the dream. If you're in the minor leagues, everybody, this friend of mine was telling me, you know, you basically live for making the big leagues. You, you live for making it to the major leagues. And you, you work your tail off. You're in crazy situations. I mean, for some people, it feels like prison, you know, because you're on buses and you're, you're uh, it's just, it's awful, the experience for so many people. And this friend of mine, was, he said he was talking with Mitch Webster, who spent these seven and a half years in the minors trying to make it to the majors. And he said, you know, when I finally made it, I felt like I arrived. I, I, he's like, I finally made it. After seven and a half years, I felt like I had I, I'd made I mean, they, they call it, you made it to the show. You made it to the bigs. I mean, you've made it. And he said, it's interesting because it didn't take long before the newness began to wear off. That happiness that he felt began to fade. And Mitch Webster said, I remember, I still remember the night when I was stretching under the lights in Dodger Stadium 
and I was stretching before a game, getting ready, and I literally thought to myself, this is it? This is it. You know, and he said, it's interesting because he said, I had more money. I had bright, you know, there were brighter lights, but nothing had changed in my life. All the problems that I had when I was in the minors hadn't gone away. All the issues that I had before I made it, before I'd finally arrived, all of my problems, nothing had changed. And he said, I spent seven and a half years of my life trying to get to this, to this. And this is where we have to be careful with the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. Because we have this perception. If the government would just, if my employer would just, if the market would just, if the economy would just, you know, then we'll be happy. But we're still stuck in our own skin. You know, the problem isn't always outside of us. And I just, I think that's powerful. We need, to, we need to be brought to that awareness. You know, Paul, back, you know, going back to Philippians, Paul, he would have been tempted and justified in most of our minds in complaining, right? And I think we deal with similar situations. So how does Paul respond? How does Paul respond? Look at verse 3. Verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. That's how he starts this letter. I thank God for you. I am so excited. I am full of joy because of you. Every time I think about you, I'm lifted up again. That's Paul's response. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation, um, has written introductions to all the books. And here's a little excerpt. I'll probably be reading this throughout the summer in different ways. He says, this is Paul's happiest letter, and the happiness is infectious. Before we've read a dozen lines, we begin to feel the joy ourselves. Paul doesn't tell us that we can be happy or how to be happy. He simply and unmistakably is happy. And so as we look at this text this morning, as we look at this letter over the course of the summer, I want you to understand the words, but I want you to see the heart of Paul. I want you to realize that there was a human author here who was dealing with circumstances that were just like yours, if not worse, and to see how he responds. Because when we come up, when we we come face to face with Paul, when we recognize what his heart really was and where it came from, look out. Your life's going to change. Your life is going to change. We're going to see Paul's happiness with his life and how it conquers today his frustration with the government and with the powers that be. And we're going to see this in three points. So here are the three points if you're taking notes on the outline. Point number one, focus on others and it'll bring happiness. Okay, focus on others, it'll bring happiness. Two, prayer makes happiness grow. Prayer makes happiness grow. And then three, your calling, your identity, brings you deep, unchangeable happiness. Okay, and we'll go through those again as we come. So first, focus on others, and it'll bring happiness. 
Paul is moved. I mean, he starts, we just read it in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Of you. You say, gosh, Paul, how do you deal with the circumstances in your life? How do you deal with the fact that there you are in prison, chained, completely dependent on things outside of you if you're going to eat tomorrow? Paul says, you know what? I don't think about my circumstances. I think about the family of God. I think about the family of God. And what is it, what is it that gets Paul so excited? Verse 5, he says, it's because of your partnership in the gospel. They are with him in this. This idea of partnership, it's, it's the word koinonia, which some of you might, you know, is familiar. It's, it's the word that we use for fellowship. And so, and this idea of partnership, it's really, it's two things. They shared something in common. They have a shared faith in Jesus, right? So Paul rejoices in them. He's thankful for them. They make him happy because he recognizes that their faith is genuine, Right? But then also, it's not just that they have something in common, but they were sharing responsibility together. This word partnership was actually used in business partnerships uh, during those times. The same word was used to describe people coming together to forge a business relationship. And the idea was they shared responsibility, financial responsibility, um, authority. They shared in the work that they were doing. And that's exactly what was happening here. This gift that they gave to Paul, to Paul, Paul interpreted that as, this is them partnering with me. They're sharing in my financial needs, my my needs for food. And so for Paul, in a sense, this was proof to him that God is real. Okay? Because just map-wise, you got Rome that's in Italy. Um, Philippi was in Greece. Okay, I did a map quest on it. How do you get from Rome to Greece? You get wet, but if you, if you get there like the bird flies, it's 1,400 kilometers or 800 miles. That's a long way when you don't have a car or a plane. 800 miles they sent this gift. And we're going to learn more about the gift as we go through the letter. But the idea was that here Paul was, he planted this church in Philippi. You can read about it in Acts 16. He planted this church, and then he goes off on his way. He ends up in jail, and he gets this gift, this this gift where they're saying, look, Paul, we're in it with you. We are striving with you. We want to give sacrificially to help meet your needs. And Paul's realizing their faith is real. It wasn't just that I motivated a bunch of people or I got them sucked into a church. It was that God was working in their hearts. Their faith was genuine when Paul was there and when Paul was gone. They continued in the faith. And this gave Paul joy. It made him happy. His focus on them made him happy. So instead of focusing on the government, instead of focusing on his situation, instead of focusing on the powers that be that were out of his control, he saw what God was doing in the lives of others. And that made him happy. He saw what God was doing in the lives of others and that made him happy. So what does that mean for us? Boy, that's a, that's a road paved for all of us to walk down, right? Instead of looking at your circumstances. Now, it's interesting. Paul will talk about his circumstances next week. So it's not that Paul is ignoring it. It's not that Paul is Pollyanna. It's not that Paul is, you know, sort of, pie in the sky i'm just gonna like act like nothing's wrong he'll talk about what's wrong but first and foremost his joy comes because he sees what god is doing in others so don't wait for something to get fixed 
Okay? Don't try to fill in the blank that you'll be happy when the government... Don't even try to fill in the blank. Instead, look around you and see what is God doing now? What's God doing in the people around you? You know, we need each other. This idea of partnership, gosh, this is why we call ourselves the family of God. If we can't partner together, like the Philippian church partnered with Paul, oh, we're going to be anemic. We're going to fizzle up. We need the strength that we get from each other. We need each other because sometimes we need to see that God is at work in someone else to convince us that God is still at work in the world, right? Because there are times where we get into that place and no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, there's no joy coming out of us, right? We don't see God anywhere. Our prayers hit the ceiling and fall back to the floor, right, when we pray. You know, the Bible really does collect dust up on the shelf. You know, we get into those places in our lives, and when that happens, we need to be pulled out and look and see what is God doing with my brothers and my sisters in the Lord? What else is God doing in the city that I can rejoice in? And that pulls us out of that vicious cycle. Community groups here at downtown are specifically designed to create these kinds of partnerships. That's why we talk about them all the time. Our community groups are ways that you can experience this kind of close fellowship, this kind of partnership. As you guys share lives with each other, as you overlap, those who are down you know, are ministered to by those who are up. You know, those who are up encourage those who are down. Sometimes everybody's down and you just get encouragement that you're not the only one. <laughs> you know? And so again... Um, um, so we need to look at that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together that's a profound book on community. And he basically sums up so much of what he says. And he just says, look, there are times when we need the Christ in others. We need the Christ in others. We need somebody outside of us. And so for you, find someone to love and appreciate. I mean, then you can follow Paul's footsteps here. Love the people around you. you know, see how God's working in others. That's what made Paul happy. And it is a pathway to happiness for you, no matter what the government is doing, no matter what the powers that be are doing in your life. Find others and love someone else. Okay, the second point on our outline, Paul goes farther after he expresses you know, this, this amazing thankfulness for them. Um, we see that prayer makes happiness grow. Okay, point number two, prayer makes happiness grow. Paul knows their challenges. If you read the book, you see all kinds of things that are going to come up. There's opposition that they're dealing with. There's conflict and confusion even within the church. And so Paul's response is to love them by praying for them. Okay, he's overjoyed at their gift. He's overjoyed at their partnership in the gospel. And then Paul's joy kind of ratchets up another level as he goes to pray for them. His love for them drove him to go to God, the one who can actually do something about their problems. And so it's funny, it's almost like Paul, after rehearsing their partnership with him, then begins to talk about his partnership with them through his prayers. By praying, he is now becoming part of what God is doing in their lives. Does that make sense? When you pray for somebody, you are becoming part of what God is doing in their lives. And so already now, if you're focused on others, 
and now you've joined God in what he's doing in their lives by praying for them, that can be the beginning of you experiencing that sense of happiness. You begin to connect with God. It's not focused on you. It's focused on others, and you get to work with God. And so we need to be looking for what God is doing and be involved in it through prayer. Now, what does he pray? Well, verses 9 through 11 give us the content of his prayer. Verse 9, he says, I pray that your love may abound more and more. I want you to love more and more and more and more and more. That's what Paul's praying for. He's praying that they would learn. And then he characterizes this love. He characterizes it in three ways. He says, I want your love to grow more and more, verse 9, in knowledge and all discernment. With knowledge and all discernment, verse 9. And so this is a mature love that understands and meets needs. Okay? Understands and meets needs. So it's more than just an emotional, I'm in love with someone, or, or I have this feeling that, uh, of happiness when I'm... I mean, what Paul's talking about is love with knowledge and discernment. Okay? Love that understands what the needs are and then has the discernment to know how to meet those needs, how to meet those needs. This is the kind of love that brings happiness because it makes a real difference in someone else's life. When you are intelligently meeting someone else's needs and you see that those needs are being met, I mean, how do you feel when you do that? When you do something for someone and they go, oh, that's exactly what I needed. Thank you. How does it make you feel? makes you feel happy, right? It increases your level of happiness because you think, wow, okay, thanks be to God, I serve this person. So Paul's saying with, real, with, with knowledge and discernment. And then verse 10, he says, I'm praying that your love would grow more and more so that you may approve what is excellent. So that you may approve what is excellent. And the idea here that Paul has in mind is it's almost like this good, better, best. Okay, Paul is saying, I want your love to grow so that you wouldn't just do what is good for others or even what's better. But I want you to, f- to be able to understand the superior things, the, the best things, and that your love would reflect the best things for other people. Okay, so not, I, I mean, some of this is really, truly, deeply understanding what needs are, right? Maybe not just handing someone you know, they, they say, teach a man to fish, and he eats for a day. Feed, teach him. I just said that wrong, didn't I? Give a man a fish, he eats for a day. Teach a man to fish, he, he eats for a lifetime, right? And so Paul would say that the superior thing would be probably to do both, right? Not to pick one or the other, but to say, look, give a man a fish, and then teach him how to fish as well, right? That's what the superior things are. When we think about Harbor, we think about our, our hope for, down, you know, for San Diego and, and what we're doing here downtown, We want to love downtown with knowledge and discernment so that we can do the superior things, so we can do the best things for our city, so that we're part of the solution, not just the one-time solutions, but the ongoing things that make our city more healthy. How can we be teaching people to fish? How can we be helping people get better equipment so that they can fish more effectively? Right? How can we improve the quality of the water that people are fishing in? Right? How can we increase the number of ponds where people can go fishing? How do we remove the barriers and the obstacles that keep people from having access to all the fishing places? 
You know, I mean, you kind of work the analogy up and you kind of get lost. Like, well, what exactly does that mean? Well, our mercy ministry is designed to help figure that out and to bring our resources and our people and our, you know, in the talents that God has given us to try to meet the needs of San Diego. Um, this is where Paul is aiming us, saying, I want your life to be characterized by the best, by the best. And then he says, uh, the third thing he says, verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The fruit of righteousness, that your life would be like a tree planted by the streams of water that brings forth fruit in its season, that your life would be characterized with a life that demonstrates that Jesus is Lord. I mean, this isn't... It doesn't mean perfect. I mean, Paul says pure and blameless. This doesn't mean that you are perfect, but it means having a reputation that you do the right thing. Having a reputation that people trust you, that your life is filled with sort of the fruits of right living. And it's a life that shows that Jesus is your king. Okay, he's your emperor. Right? Instead of complaining about the government or waiting for it to change, Paul's focused prayer is that you would simply live out the change that you're hoping for in your life. That you would start to show what that change might look like in your own life. And you can do that now, even if nothing changes. That's kind of the wonder. You can do that now, even if nothing changes. When you do that, it'll make you happy. <clears throat> now, we've got to remember that you can't do this on your own, okay? In a sense, I'm giving you this example for, you know, of Paul to follow, and, and you can't. Like, none of us have the strength to do this on our own, okay? And it's good to acknowledge that up front, but what's amazing is that Paul didn't have the strength to do this either, okay? Look what Paul says. He says it's the power of Jesus. Verse 11, this fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Okay, this fruit of right living it comes from being related to jesus it comes from having the spirit of jesus living inside of you that's where your strength comes from this isn't about doing and doing and doing and doing and doing so you can feel good about how well you've done it's about being connected to jesus which we'll talk about here in a second but then verse eight look at that look at verse eight verse eight says god is my witness how i yearn for you all with the affection of christ jesus I mean, this is helpful. Paul's not saying I have all this affection that wells up in me and that's how I can love you. Paul says, I have the affection of Jesus himself in me. You catch that? Paul talks all about Jesus. For Paul, everything is about Jesus. His ability to love, his ability to rejoice, his ability to, um, to, to have the fruits of righteousness. It all comes because he's united to Jesus. It's actually Jesus's righteousness that flows through Paul. It's Jesus's affection that flows out of Paul. And he says, I'm praying all of this. Um, look at verse 10 again. To be, so that you be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. For the day of the Savior. This gives you confidence because as you experience this daily grace of God, you realize that you are on a path, you're walking on a road, the end of which is forever happiness. Okay? If you're following Jesus today, 
if you are following him, you are walking down a pathway that leads to forever happiness. You're on that now. And you can taste it. You can see where the road is heading. Because you can experience that happiness today. That happiness today. Okay, and then this brings us to our third and our last point. That your identity is the well to your deeper happiness. Okay? Your identity is the well to your deeper happiness. For Paul, it was more than just... um, It was more than just focusing on others. It was more than just praying for others. Although those those things were a huge part of his daily experience of happiness. For Paul, there was something deeper. And that deeper happiness was rooted and grounded in his identity. It was his identity. Look at, I mean, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. The word servants kind of it's 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 sort of a a a prettied up term it just means slaves slavery was um was rampant back then in the first century paul considered himself a slave of jesus okay he was a slave of jesus which meant that he was totally committed to jesus as his master that's who he was and so what this meant for him was that no matter where he was if he was out preaching the gospel to all the nations of the earth or if he was in prison in chains There was only one thing ultimately that mattered to Paul. Am I serving my master? And if I am, then I'm happy. Let that sink in for a second. For Paul, the only thing that mattered to him was, am I serving my master? Because if I am, then I'm happy. Paul's identity was that he was devoted to Jesus above anything. And so no matter what else he wanted out of his life, no matter what else he wanted the government to do for his circumstances, his situation, if Paul could serve his master Jesus, then he was happy. And verse 2 says, uh, he says, Grace you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus was his master, but Jesus was also his Lord. This is a, an incredibly powerful word to use, especially in a province of Rome, which Philippi was. Philippi was a city uh, that was, I mean, has an interesting history that we may get into at some point during the series. But in Philippi, there was a very clear declaration of who was Lord. And it was Caesar. Caesar was Lord in Philippi. That was what things were. And so for Paul to say this was a politically charged statement. But he didn't back down from it. For Paul, Jesus was Lord. And that meant that Caesar is not. Caesar is not Lord. All the government of the world will one day bow to Jesus. He is the Lord of Lords. And that future happiness that future knowledge that that would happen someday gave paul happiness in his again you know he was serving the lord of lords he was serving jesus now jesus was lord why because because he conquered death caesar became lord because well he took over actually after 
I mean, all kinds of crazy war and, you know, and, uh, and intrigue and, and civil unrest. And, and so Nero was Caesar at the time. You know, but Ciro, you know, Caesar sort of by military might, Caesar becomes Lord. With Jesus, Jesus became Lord because he conquered death. You think about Jesus' life, actually, with, re- with relationship to the government, and it's not all that unlike Paul's, right? Both the religious government and the secular government work together not just to put Jesus in prison, but to crucify him, right? They put Jesus to death. They destroyed him. And it's because Jesus was willing not just to be imprisoned, but to die for the world, that he's eligible to be the world's Lord that he was willing to die for us, that he's willing to die for the times that we complain about the government, the times that we complain about the powers that be in our lives, for all the times when we say, I'll be happy when, whatever. Jesus died for those times. And then he rose from the dead. He passed through death into resurrection. And in his resurrection, he conquers our complaining. He conquers our unhappiness. He partners with us so that we might be freed from our sins. The partnership that we have with Jesus is this deeper sense of happiness. It's the deeper source of happiness that never changes. Because when we partner with Jesus, he takes our sins and we take his happiness. And so... When you fail to focus on others to make you happy, when you fail to pray for others so that your happiness would grow, for the times when you're only focused on yourself, you know, it's almost like there's two levels that operate. Okay? There's sort of the level of daily experience of God and daily experience of God's happiness. And that can fluctuate sort of up and down. As we go, and, and the more we're focused on others and loving others, the more we're focused on praying for others and being involved in what God's doing in their lives, the more we experience that genuine sense of, hey, I'm, I'm fulfilling my calling, right? There's that upper level of happiness that we experience when we're following Paul's example here. But then when that happiness goes away because we fail, when that happiness goes away because we just can't cope, when that happiness goes away for whatever reason, what Paul is also teaching us in this passage is that there's this deeper level, this deeper source of happiness that never changes no matter what. Because Jesus took all of the things that rob you of your happiness, he took them all onto himself and he died for them. He conquered them in his death so that he might rise and he rose from the dead so that you might be free. So that you might have access to this deeper happiness that lasts no matter what your circumstances are. That can last no matter what the government does. And that's why Paul can call each one of you saints. That's why he calls you saints. Verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. If you believe in him today, you're a saint. Not a a perfected person in this life, not someone who has done more, I mean, not, you know, in, in some of the ways that we think about that word saint. When Paul uses this word, he's talking about people who are loving Jesus and who are following them, who are following him. 
Yeah, they are holy because Jesus was holy. And that's that source, that deep abiding source that produces those fruits of right living in your life. And so if you're here this morning and you aren't yet a Christian, if you haven't yet put your faith in this Jesus, Jesus is offering you a source of happiness that can never, that, that, that would never change. A source of happiness that will bring you through no matter what the government or the market or the economy or your job or what your relationships or anything, nothing can touch you if you have this source of happiness because it's based on something that was done 2,000 years ago and it never changes. And so I'd encourage you to come and to believe in him. Believe in Jesus this morning and find this happiness in your life. Let's pray. Father, thinking about these things, it makes me happy. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for the realness of his heart, that in the middle of his circumstance, he could write this way. He could look to others. I know, God, that those of us who have experienced this, we we get this. We really do understand how this works. Um, We know what it's like when we focus on others and the joy that that can bring us. We know that experience in prayer that can, uh, that can draw us even closer to you. And Father, we also know that those two things aren't enough sometimes. And so we're thankful for Jesus who was holy for us, who had joy and happiness for us, and he shares his joy with us. With, with us. God, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.